Hey there, welcome to Grace Church Online. So glad that uh, you're tuning in and that we can have a conversation together this weekend. My name is Josh, I'm one of our pastors here. I, I work with our life groups and excited to be able to join in this series. Um, we've been talking about uh, a series we're in called Stops Along the Way. And we've been looking at a few different uh, stories in the gospel accounts um, and really trying to think of how the first followers of Jesus would have experienced what it was like to journey with Jesus and to um, see all that he was doing and revealing about himself. And so um, we've gone along a few of those stops. Uh, Jesus was just uh, very much living life purposefully. Uh, he was here with a specific plan and mission. He often would say that he was bringing the, the kingdom of God uh, something that very much the people of God were expecting and hoping for. But um, how he did that was so transformative and so unexpected that um, as he kind of goes through his life and teaches along the way, there's these stops that he has with disciples, uh, people who are following him, others he interacts with, where he brings clarity, where he reveals himself, where he explains what the kingdom of God is. And so it's been fun. Uh, you can go back and look at some of those other conversations. We've talked about his initial call to follow the, um, the disciples to follow him. We've talked about um, the interaction with uh, Matthew, who was a tax collector. And then even last week, we were talking about the Sabbath law and how Jesus uh, inserted himself into that conversation. And so go back and check those out. They're online, and uh, they would kind of give you the full picture of where we're at in the journey so far. And most of our time that we've been uh, spending in this series, we've been in the Gospel account of Mark. So uh, it's in the New Testament. It's one of four Gospel accounts. And um, it's a great one. It moves really fast-paced. Um, you begin to see really um, what this kingdom is that Jesus is bringing, how he review reveals his true identity and um, his heart toward us. Um, toward them, the, the readers or the, the actual audience in that situation, and really his, his mind, his worldview, and uh, what he's bringing to bear about himself and the kingdom of God. So we're going to be in Mark 4 today. Um, there's a whole context that we won't be able to engage. We're just going to dial in to the end of the chapter. There's um, a really familiar story, if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark or if you've been around church, where Jesus calms the storm. And so that's going to be where we focus in today. But all of Mark 4 is um, one day. It's one singular day. And so uh, Mark 4 starts by talking about um, an instance where Jesus um, teaches. It's actually the first time in the book where he, we get a, an insight into the extended uh, teaching that Jesus was giving. What was he actually saying? Up to this point, we've only heard, hey, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe. Um, and many begin to follow him. They begin to follow him as a leader, as a teacher. And uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 4, um, he starts the day teaching. And a crowd begins to form that's so large, they're kind of by uh, this lake. Um, a crowd begins to form that's so large it takes up the whole shoreline. And um, a few of Jesus' disciples who were fishermen um, are able to get him in a boat, kind of push him out into the lake a little bit so he can, he can speak with everyone and he can teach to them all. So it's a very interesting interaction. You should read Mark 4 sometime. You can see some of the parables he gives. He starts talking about someone who would go out to sow seeds and, and the seeds land in different spots. And um, he's teaching. He's teaching with everyone who's there. But the disciples who are in the boat with him 
are having a unique conversation with him as well. As he teaches, he's speaking in parables. He's, he's speaking kind of in this revealing something, he's teaching something, but he's also kind of concealing something as well. He, he's trying to teach, but he's also trying to make it that if you want this, you're going to have to seek it a little bit further. He's trying to um, draw out um, the people who really want to know. He even says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Of course, we all have ears, but he's saying whoever wants to really understand and know this, um, seek it out, seek me out. And his disciples do that. His disciples begin to um, ask him, what does this parable mean? And Jesus says, um, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. And he explains the parables to them, and they get this special interaction as Jesus teaches. And so that in and of itself is a very uh, unique stop along the way. We don't get to really uh, visit that today, but it all happens. All of this teaching moment, explaining what the kingdom of God is like, what it means for Jesus to be here, and what he will be like as um, a leader and a teacher, um, and even who he really wants to reveal himself to be, is all going to come out in this section. And um, we're going to pick it up in Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. So you can uh, grab that on your app or something. Uh, you can download our app by searching for Grace Ohio. Maybe you have a Bible in hand right now. Uh, so open that up to Mark 4, and we're going to look at this um, account that happens with the disciples after this long day of teaching out on the boat. So it says this in Mark 4, starting in verse 35. It says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so uh, maybe you're familiar with that story. Uh, I grew up hearing it often. I've uh, taught it before. I've heard it taught. Um, have read it many times. And I think that's uh, a little bit to our disadvantage, that when something becomes very familiar to us, it can begin to make us move too quickly um, to either just wanting to apply it really quick or even just move on. And so what's happening, I think, here with Jesus is a little bit more, we shouldn't glance over it too quickly. Like the, the thing I want to do is be like, cool, Jesus calmed the storms for the disciples. He can calm the storms for me. That's great. That's true. I think Jesus is doing something more here than just calming the storm. I think Jesus, what he wants to do is reveal something about himself. He wants to reveal something about himself specifically to the disciples who are in that boat. That's kind of what we've been doing in the stops along the way. We're not just reading quickly. We're slowing down and trying to experience it the way the people who are actually interacting with Jesus would have experienced it. And I think it's important to remember, who do the disciples think that Jesus is up to this point? Who do they really see him as? 
They see him as a messianic leader. Um, he's the promised one. They expected someone to come who would be a leader um, and who would rescue and redeem them. And not just them, but re redeem and rescue the world. Um, as the people of God, they understood that God had a cosmic plan to um, fix what was broken, and he was going to send someone. And so they, they knew that uh, Jesus was claiming to be this sent one. Uh, they were following him as a leader. They were listening to him as a teacher. Uh, you can go back to week one of this uh, series and even see that call to follow uh, him. But as they're following him and watching his life and listening to his teaching and seeing him perform even miracles along the way, I don't believe at this point they really understand that Jesus isn't just someone sent from God, but he's God himself. I think at, at this point in the story, they see him as a, a leader, they see him as a teacher, they see him as someone who's sent, but I don't know that they really see him as God himself, God in the flesh. And so I think that's why Jesus is using this moment with the disciples. He wants them to walk away knowing that that's who he is, and he wants to display that on his terms. So knowing everything that we know now, um, let's walk back through the story. Um, it's, a, it's a short passage. Let's go back through it and think the way the disciples would have thought. Um, they're experienced fishermen, many of them are. Um, Peter, James, John, Andrew, um, they would have been trained uh, to be fishermen and have, have that skill. And then also, they don't really know that he is God. They don't really know the extent of his power and authority other than the fact that they believe he's the one who was sent. And so this is, let's kind of see it from their angle, from their lens, and experience it the way they would have experienced it. And so Mark 4, 35 through 36, let's start here. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. So again, many of these disciples, the first followers of Jesus, were fishermen, not all of them. But this was probably their boat. <laughs> this was probably one of the resources that Jesus had um, at his disposal in his, in his teaching ministry. You know, everyone's at the Jesus conference out by the lake. They're all on the shoreline and the day's over. And uh, now he's just going to be with his disciples, kind of his inner circle. And this would have been something that they're very familiar and used to doing. Um, the disciples who were experienced fishermen would have been out on this lake thousands of times. They had gone back and forth across it over and over again. It would have been second nature to them. It was their trade. It was their skill. It was the area where they were comfortable and the place where they knew what to expect and knew how to manage it. I also think it's super interesting that there are other boats that also go with them. And I don't really know who's in those boats. I know that the kind of boat that we're talking about would have been large enough for Jesus and his disciples to have gone across in one boat together. It's just interesting that there are going to be other people who experience this event, who experience this storm, and Jesus isn't with them. Only the disciples are going to be the ones who get a unique insight and revelation into who Jesus really is and how he uses this storm to do that. The next two verses. A furious squall came up, and the waves 
broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, uh, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, it makes sense, right? Jesus is like exhausted from a day of teaching. I think it's just like a very interesting detail that they're saying that he's asleep in the stern of the boat. Um, Just, I think, even just to show that this really happened um, in kind of ancient literature, they uh, wouldn't normally add more details if it was fiction. They would leave that open to the imagination of the reader. And I think it's something maybe that we're used to, uh, that details are added to make it more believable. Uh, So this is just something very unique that um, Mark is writing in this story. He's saying Jesus is asleep. He didn't need to tell us that, but he's pointing out that he is. And the fishermen, these disciples who would have known how to navigate a storm, they get to the end of their limit. For some reason, this storm, beyond all other storms that they've experienced, is outside of their control or what they can manage. And so they get to the point where they come to Jesus kind of as a last resort. I don't know if they're saying, hey, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Like, grab a bucket, like, help us get some of the water out of the boat. Or if they're saying, hey, Jesus, we're trained fishermen, and we know that this is going to end in our death. Like, there's no way out. Um, So just kind of, like, preparing him for that, waking up, letting him know what's actually happening. But they're informing him that nothing else can be done, really. They're not expecting him to calm the storm. I don't think they knew to ask him that. They expected to drown. And so that is one of my first indicators that the disciples actually don't know who Jesus is. They don't understand his power and his authority yet. Even though Jesus has taught all day, this is a moment that he's using to really instill something in them and reveal himself to them. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's uh, quiet, be still. The fishermen, the disciples, they've been trying to manage this storm, control the boat, save their lives. And in three simple words, quiet, be still, it's completely calm. Like it doesn't even just slow down, it's completely calm. It's completely unheard of. I I, I don't even have a category for that kind of event. (laughs) And what it would have been like for the disciples' category to have been broken, to just like see this amount of power displayed over an area where they were confident that they had control over the lake. And he asked them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The other way that this could be asked is, where is your faith? I've seen it written a few different ways. But where is your faith? This isn't like a moment to to bust them. See, you were supposed to have known that I could have calmed the storms and I caught you because you didn't think that I could do that. They didn't didn't know. Jesus is revealing something new about his personhood and his power and his authority. And he's doing it very uniquely for those disciples. He doesn't kick them out of the boat. 
Instead, he helps bring them into faith. He helps increase their faith. This storm, Jesus knowingly sending them into it, is something that's for them. For them to be in an environment where they trust their skills and themselves the most and to be brought to the end of their rope. And for Jesus to say, and this is where I intervene. I'm not outside of my realm. I'm not outside of control. This is not outside of my power. And in that moment, he chooses to display himself. It's not uh, a busting them moment. He's not catching them. Um, He's using this in a very significant way, bringing him to the point of death to show who he really is. And then here at the end, too, I mean, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. This is a good question. Why were the disciples afraid after the storm is calmed? See, they were confronted with the reality of where their faith really was. Jesus was showing them where their faith really was in that moment. And that their faith in themselves and their skills and their competence in that situation wasn't going to work. It wasn't enough. And that also they were in the presence of someone far more powerful than they initially thought. In their most competent, under control, able to manage themselves situation, Jesus was more powerful and more in control. And this is why Jesus sends them into the storm. He's been teaching them all day about who he is and what his kingdom looks like and the power that it brings and the change and transformation that happens when Jesus enters into the world and into our lives. But they had not learned yet what the parables were teaching And the storm is revealing where their faith actually is. It's in their ability to control their circumstances. And Jesus wants them to know that he is more powerful, he is God, and he is in control. I think Jesus knew this. I think Jesus knew that the greatest danger was not the wind or the waves, but it was the fear in the disciples' hearts. There are two fears that happen in this story. There's a fear of the storm being brought to the point of death, a point where they don't know if they're going to make it out alive. And there's a second fear, and it's of Jesus himself. They're terrified. They no longer know who he is. All the categories have been broken. The game has changed. At least the rules of the game have changed. Jesus isn't just like doing a magic show. He's not just flexing his power. Um, he's displaying his power in the kingdom that he brings because he wants to increase the disciples' faith. He's not just doing a miracle for the sake of doing a miracle. It has a purpose. It has a purpose for the disciples who are in that boat. It has a purpose and for what he's going to even do next. Go read like Mark 5. And I already told you to read Mark 4 and listen to what uh, Jesus said when he taught. Go read Mark 5. You're going to see two other like powerful moments where he casts out a legion of demons and he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Jesus is doing something specific. It's not just a magic show. He's not just showing off his power. He's revealing himself. They only expected a great leader or a great teacher. And what they got was God himself. 
You know, they think they're good with Jesus, and he wants them to see that he is God. Jesus wants to instill a faith in the disciples, a faith in him that requires every aspect of their life to be surrendered to him. Every aspect of their life. Areas of great fear and doubt and areas even of great confidence and competence. It doesn't matter whatever they think they can handle or can't handle, what they have under control or don't have under control. Jesus is making it very clear that he has absolute power, authority, and control. So this kind of brings us to the point. Here we are reading um, an account with the disciples and Jesus is doing something specific to them, but like, where does that leave me? Where, where do I begin to pick up this conversation? Like, could Jesus do in me what he just did in the disciples? Should I expect him to? Should I expect him to increase my faith through fear and doubt? Should I expect God to work in my life the same way I just saw him work in the disciples' life? I think we should. I think that's what we're supposed to take away. More than just the knowledge that Jesus can calm storms in our life, whatever those may be. I think the purpose of any of that is to increase our faith. To increase our faith in him. To really fully know and surrender to who he is. And who he's revealed himself to be on his terms. I read it this way one time that we all live by faith in something or someone. Our actions are the tangible expression of what we believe. You don't just do the things you do without any subconscious or even intentional thought behind it that we are always operating on some set of beliefs. Whether it's deep down or it's on the surface, in our operating system as a human being, we have a worldview. We have a, a way of understanding the world and relating with God and relating with each other. And we either know what those beliefs are or they remain hidden or subconscious. And so I think even for like the disciples or ourselves, here's what Jesus is doing. He's getting to the heart of the issue. He's getting to the fear and belief underneath the actual circumstances and events. I think that's like the question we need to ask ourselves is like, what, how can we identify what we tend to put our faith in, what we tend to trust in other than the person of Jesus? How do, how do we even begin to identify that? If we were made to experience God's power and presence and his love in every part of our life. That's what he's trying to do with the disciples. He's trying to start with their greatest competence and show them even in this area, I have power, authority, and I am present and I love you. Is what he's trying to do. He's using that to break down their confidence so that it might be replaced with greater dependence on him. And if we were made to experience Jesus that way, in every aspect of our life, surrender every part of our heart to him, how would I begin to assess what the underlying beliefs are behind my life? Jeff Vanderstelt, uh, a pastor and author I really um, respect, he said it this way. He says, every one of us is an unbeliever, at least in some area of our lives. We all still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. We don't believe his word is true or his word is sufficient. We all face daily struggles and battles. We hear lies, 
and accusations, and we struggle with temptation and deception. We all need help. We all need the gospel. The gospel is the good news. This is what Jesus is bringing. That's the kingdom of God. It's the person of Jesus. The good news is that he's up to work. He's going to fix what is broken, that he has a plan and his power and authority are what enable that plan to be carried forward. What Jeff Vanderstel is saying here, that each of us is an unbeliever, at least in some area of our lives. Whatever place in our lives that is where we don't yet believe God. Like for the disciples, that's there on the boat, in the water, realizing that he actually does have power and authority over that domain, more than they do. The kinds of daily struggles and battles that we face, the lies and accusations we believe, the temptation and deception that we fall into, there's all sorts of categories or aspects of our life that either we know need surrendered to God, we know we don't yet fully believe what God says, or maybe this remain hidden. We don't know why we struggle. We don't know why we believe what we believe, but we know it's affecting our lives. I think there's a great way to not just address our circumstances or our behaviors or just the external aspects of our life. There's a way that we need to go deeper. We need to discover those hidden beliefs or those subconscious beliefs, and we need to get to the heart of the issue. We need to get to the root of the issue. And so there's a really helpful way that I've, I've come to understand this. Start with uh, this graphic of this tree. Beautiful, right? Uh, there, there are four questions that I think help um, us know and assess what we're really believing. How do we actually get to the heart issue of what's going on in our lives when we have those lies and those struggles and those disbeliefs? The four questions are how I live, who I am, what God has done, and who is God? And you can do them in two different orders. We're going to walk through this. But how do I answer those questions? Who is God? What has he done? Who am I and how do I live? Let's work through this a little bit. So if I'm someone who's experiencing fear and doubt, that's life right now. That's how I'd categorize it. That's how I'd describe it. Then what ultimately am I believing about who I am? What am I believing about myself? Maybe, not in all situations, but in most, we would put some language around it that we're not in control. Like that we believe we're the ones who are supposed to be in control, that we should be able to manage this, that it's up to us, that we should have control, but we're not. And so fear and doubt begin to set in because we're not in control and we believe we need to be or we should be. What does that actually say about what we believe about God, we may begin to believe that he stopped loving us. That if he actually loved me, he would intervene. And if maybe it's not a love problem, that maybe it's that he's lost control. Maybe that's the reason I feel that I need to have controls because I don't believe that God can have control over this situation, over this circumstance, in this area of my life. And maybe if it's not disbelief that he doesn't love me or that he um, isn't powerful enough, that he's lost control. Maybe it's a sense of he's abandoned me, that I'm just alone. He's not involved. He's not in the boat. Like, he's not here with me. He doesn't care about this. What kind of a picture of God does that paint? 
Like, if that's what I believe God is doing, and it may not be, but if, that, if that's some of the underlying belief of what I think I'm supposed to do and who I believe, what, what God is doing, who do I actually believe that God is? I believe that he is unloving, that he is weak, and that he is distant. And that's the problem. That is what Jesus is trying to correct. He's trying to correct all of this sort of incorrect thinking. And I don't, I don't know if he really gets to, to all the level with the disciples of all these things, but we do know that they have fear and doubt. And we do know that fear and doubt are in some way affecting their identity and their view of who Jesus is. And so what Jesus wants to do in that moment is not just say, goodness gracious, you have fear and doubt. You should have more faith. You should just trust me. He doesn't just tell them to modify their behavior. What he actually does, as you even begin to see throughout the rest of the, the gospel account of Mark, is that he continues to reveal himself, that he uses these moments to increase their faith by revealing who he is. Because who is God? If I have an incorrect view of God, how should I actually see him? I should see him as someone who is loving. I should see him as someone who is powerful. I should see him as someone who is present. Is that just because that's what I want God to be? Is there anything that God has done to actually display that? Yeah, you can look at the instance with the disciples in the boat. That's kind of their experience. They experience his power in a, in a very real way and his presence and his love. But what about for us? Like, how do we wrestle with fear and doubt? How do we see God working in our lives? First of all, we know that he's loving because of his death, that God would send his son to not only enter the world and put skin on and enter our mess, but that he would die for us, that he would die on the cross as a perfect person for our sins. We know that he loves us. He sent his son. He died. We know that he's powerful because of his resurrection, that death wasn't the final say, that whether it's a storm or whether it's any other thing that he's encountering, even to the point of death, Jesus has power and authority and control. And so it's his death, it's his resurrection, and it's his spirit. Even though Jesus isn't with us now, he promised that he would send his spirit. And we see that. That story plays out in the rest of the New Testament. You can see that he gives his spirit and uh, says that he will provide an advocate, a comforter, a guide, someone to be in us and with us and to unite us. And so, yeah, he is loving because of his death. He is powerful because of his resurrection. He is present because his spirit is with us. And so who am I? I certainly don't have to be in control. I simply get to be a child in the family. That his death was meant to bring me in to the family of God. That I'm loved like a son or a daughter. And that I'm a child of the king. And I'm not just a child. I am, as the book of Romans would say, that I'm more than a conqueror, that there's no force, no power that can separate me from God's love, that if he wants to be with me, he will be with me because he is God. And there is nothing that can separate me from that. So I'm a child, I'm a conqueror, and I'm not alone because I have his spirit with me. I'm not abandoned. 
I'm not just having to figure out how to control life on my own or with just the resources that I have. But that His Spirit, He would say that He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It, it doesn't just transform my view of God. It transforms my own identity. That I'm no longer who I define myself as. I am who He defines me as. And that, when I see who He really is, allows me to produce the fruit of faith and trust in my life. It's so much more than just behavior modification. Saying that when you have fear and doubt what you're supposed to do is just flip the switch and trust Him. What Jesus is trying to do is He's trying to reveal Himself, who He really is, and how we've got it wrong, our own identity, and how we understand Him, His person, and His work in the world, what He's done and what He's doing. And this is the point of change that needs to happen in our life. We need to begin to see God for who He really is. We need to begin to interact with Him on His terms. We need to see ourselves, not just in the terms we want to define ourselves in, but in the terms that God defines us in, because they're so much better. They're so much better. It's a real heart transformation. This gets to the heart of the issue, to the root of the issue. My beliefs are now being addressed. Who I believe myself to be, who I believe God to be. And this takes time. I mean, if, if you're struggling with fear and doubt, like, that's cool, draw the tree out, but don't expect it to just, like, go through the tree and it'll solve all your problems. Or if you know someone who's struggling with fear and doubt, like, don't just, like, hey, you gotta, like, look at this tree. Um, it's not that easy. It's a real wrestling with who we believe we are and a surrendering to who Jesus says he is. Things that often remain hidden or remain subconscious until fear and doubt bring them out, until God chooses to act in our lives and to work in our lives in a way that we have to address them. I know from my experience and from I think what we see with the disciples here in the boat when he calms the storm I know that God will intervene in your life to grow your faith through fear and doubt and pain and trials. Let me say that again. That God will often intervene in your life to grow your faith through fear and doubt and pain and trials. That he's going to use the things that are the most difficult and disarming and uncomfortable to draw you closer to himself to reveal more of who he is, to increase your faith, to create a deeper dependence on who he is. But I can't tell you what God will do to increase your faith, how fear and doubt and pain and trial will be used in your life. For the disciples, it's super clear. In the boat that day, this near-death experience, they're being revealed that they didn't believe um, who Jesus really was. They didn't know yet. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was increasing their faith. He was revealing to them in that moment of their greatest comfort and competence and having it all under control. He's showing them that I am the one with all power and authority and I love you and I'm with you. For me and my family, we've experienced that moment many times. Many times, and, and you have too. 
And that's what's incredible about this process is that God wants to use that, whether it's been a move to another state and having to start over with everything and not knowing what your job's going to be or where you're going to live or who you're going to have relationships with. It's been the cancer diagnosis for a parent that we saw so many times a surgery or a treatment work, but then eventually cancer won. And fear and doubt set in. It's been feeling that our family and our friends and many good things in our life are being taken away from us. And fearing and doubting where God is and all that. It's been recently a high-risk pregnancy that God brought our child, our daughter, safely into this world. We actually didn't even know how high-risk we were until after the fact. But we, we trusted him. And he worked in our life not because we trusted him. It's not about the circumstance. There's both good examples and bad examples of our life where fear and doubt set in and God sometimes works a miracle and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he calms the storm and other times he just promises that he will walk with us through it. Can we handle that? With the disciples... He calms the storm. I look at some of the examples in my life. Sometimes my circumstances change in the way I want them to, and other times they do not. But it increases my faith. It increases my faith in Him. I don't know what season you're in. Is it school? Is it everything that's going on with school right now, how it's affecting your major or just being in person or how you're going to get through your degree? Just wanting to graduate. Is it singleness or is it divorce? Is it that loneliness and wondering why, God, if this is something I desire and want, why can't I have it? Is it your job or your career path and the way you expected it to pan out or the way you expected to experience it hasn't really fulfilled you in the same way or it really didn't materialize the way you wanted it to? Is it infertility or parenting or your sexuality or some version of this? God, what am I supposed to do with this? Why are you allowing this to happen? You see a miracle work in and through those things. Is it having to walk parents through old age? Having to walk them through things like dementia? Having to walk them through things like COVID? Maybe you are older. Maybe you fear all of this COVID and being high risk or not being able to see your grandkids or your family, losing loved ones around you, all these things instill this fear and doubt. God, where are you? Can I trust you? And whether he calms the storm or not, he wants you to know that he is God, that he is loving, that he is powerful, that he is present like, what are we supposed to do when we're hit with fear and doubt? If, if we're not going to just be able to have God fix our circumstances every time, what are we supposed to do with that? We need to trust God for who he is. When we become too familiar with God or we even become forgetful of who he really is, we need to acknowledge and repent of that. When we unknowingly demote Jesus from his proper place of authority and power. We often 
try to negotiate with God, right? About our lives, what, the way we would imagine them shaping up. Those kinds of things have to be set aside. When everything is easy, I, we don't often look for God's power. Because everything's fine, right? But Jesus uses this moment when everything was easy, when they were comfortable, they've been on this lake many times, the disciples. He's using that to draw out and increase their faith. And so maybe in those moments where, when life is easy, maybe things are finally starting to shape up through this pandemic and you're starting to get your legs back underneath you and still trusting him. And when the storm hits, when we lose the job or the parent or the expectation that we hope for doesn't turn out the way we want it to, the relationship bombs, we may look for his power and we may doubt him when he doesn't fix our circumstances. But let me tell you this. Jesus wants to do more than just fix your circumstances. He wants to do so much more in your heart and in your life than just fix your circumstances. And that's hard. That's hard to accept. That's hard to trust him in. That he may want to do something better or something that is best and different than what we expect or imagine. There's a verse that also can be really familiar that I want us to read and examine that I think will draw out some of the application of what we're talking about. It comes from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Because he is Lord, because he is God, he is worthy, he is supreme, he's deserving of our trust, and what he really wants is all your heart. Every aspect of your life, the places where you already have fear and doubt, and the places where you think you are competent and have it all together. Jesus wants all your heart. He wants every part of your life. He wants every part of you. And when we do that, when we opt out of leaning on our own understanding, even when we could or even when we can't, he begins to work in a way that he uses our life to make it a path that points to him, that points to true life, that points to true meaning and purpose, that, tr that points to his better plan and involvement in our life. Tim Keller says it this way, it's not the quality of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith. See, the problem with the disciples wasn't the quality of their faith. Their faith was in themselves. They had the wrong object. If your faith isn't in God, then where is it? I mean, this is what Jesus was doing with the disciples. This is what I expect him to do in us when fear and doubt enters our lives. But there's no better place to be than having your trust in Jesus. Because if, if he is who he says he is, if all power and authority belong to him, if he is good and he loves us, if he is present with us, then that is transforming. There is nothing else that can make a claim or an offer to us like that, like him. Colossians 1 even says, 
this about Jesus. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He has created all of this. He is redeeming all of this. And he is wanting to enter into your life into those moments of fear and doubt to increase your faith and dependence on him. Jesus is going to be the one who doesn't just display his love, power, and presence in our lives personally, but he's going to do it cosmically. He's going to do it for the entire world. He's going to fix what was broken. He's going to make all things new. And he is the one who's worth trusting. He is just. He is loving. He is powerful. And he is present. And so there may be two chairs that we sit in today. If Jesus wants every part of you, if he wants complete faith in his love, power, and presence, There may be two places we find ourselves. There may be the place where we feel like it's easy to believe or we've believed often. And let me tell you, if you're someone who is in this rhythm of going to Jesus in fear and doubt and even in the moments where you have understanding but you know you're supposed to trust him, if that kind of faith is easy and regular for you, Remember that God is going to continue to increase your faith in different ways. That you need to continue to work through those doubts and fears and lies and temptations, just like we were reading that Jeff Vanderstelt quote. We never really escape all that. That God's going to continue to pursue us and work in our hearts and lives in a way that we continue to surrender more over to Him. He wants all of us. And if you are a person who believes easily whose faith has been increased. Don't look down on other people who are struggling, who are doubting, who are afraid. It's not what Jesus does. Help increase their faith. Help give them a real conversation. Listen to them. Pray with them. Talk with them. If you're in a second chair where you would say, listen, I've, I've been trying to get to this place where I can really trust him and place my faith in him, I just don't know how. I would encourage you to go to Jesus himself. That he's not just the object of our faith, right? But he's the author of it. He's the provider of our faith. That when we doubt or are afraid, we don't just try to figure it out on our own or look internally, but we go to him. And we say, help help us, Jesus. Ask him for faith. He is the one who can increase it in you. He is the one who can reveal more of himself to you. He's the one who can put your mind at peace and at ease. He's the one who can show up when no one else can. He is loving. He is powerful. He is present. And he wants to lead you to a greater dependence and trust in him. And so that's this stop along the way. (laughs) It's a big moment, actually. I encourage you to read Mark 4 and 5. Um, Get some of the context for this. Dwell on that this week. Maybe work through the the tree uh, diagram on your own. But know that God wants to use those moments to draw you closer to him, to trust him. Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you so much that you have taken the initiative to draw near to us, that you 
have revealed yourself in unique ways to the early followers through your word in the Bible, through our community here at Grace and with those you've placed in our life who are pointing us to you. Thank you for all the ways that you have surrounded us and resourced us with who you are, how you want us to understand and see and believe you. I pray for those of us who are in these moments of doubt and fear right now, God, that you would increase our faith. God, more than just calming a storm, we need you. We need a greater dependence and trust in you, God. And I pray that you would mend and repair our hearts, that you would help us get to the root of these issues, how we view ourselves, how we view you. Would you help us to see you for who you really are and to trust who you say you are? God, we thank you that we can come to you at all times. We thank you that no matter where we go, you will go with us, you will go before us, that you have created all things for you and from you. And we just ask that more than having the circumstances go the way we would want, we just ask that you would be with us. We know you will be. We just pray that we would trust you. We would trust your heart. We would trust your love and your power and your presence uh, more each day. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.